Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas Okay, everyone, um, you're all very welcome to this uh, Mayday seminar on the Magic Money Tree, which is jointly organised by Trademark and Belfast Trades Council. The Trades Council has kindly suggested that I chair this event because it's the first such event and the first Mayday um, without our comrade Mel Corey, uh, who passed away in, uh, in January um, from COVID, just at the age of 56. It just so happens that I have a story about Mel and the topic of this seminar, um, which they will be aware of. Um, most of you will know that Mel was a, he was a natural teacher. He could teach history, political economy, trade union education in an engaging, accessible and relatable way. Uh, and he could do that without really any preparation, without really breaking a sweat. Um, but a few years back, Mel and I were, were asked to deliver a political school with a group of United Activists. So we're trying to plan for the political school and think about what we were going to do. Mel says, uh, I think we should give modern monetary theory a lash. Now, at that time, Stevie was the only person who had done any serious work on the subject, any serious reading about around about the subject. Um, but Mel was, Mel was determined to do it. Uh, so he says to Stevie, give us that presentation that you have and uh, I'll, uh, I'll just work from that. And I, I, I wasn't too comfortable about that, but Mel was insistent. So in the days leading up to the school, I kept asking Mel, uh, have you looked at this presentation? Are you comfortable with it? And every time he said, aye, aye, don't worry about it. This is some grand, don't worry about it. So political school comes and we get to the MNT session and uh, Mel blags his way through two or three slides. And then uh, the next slide is this graph, really complicated looking graph that appears. And you can tell from Mel, the blank stare in Mel's face that he's never fucking seen this graph in his life. <laughs> so he freezes, throws the clicker to me, and then runs out of the room saying he needs to get something out of his car and leaves me to it to sort of bluster my way through the presentation. So it's fair to say if Mel were here, he wouldn't be allowed anywhere near this seminar. But uh, we all know, or those of us who know him, know that he made a a huge contribution to the labour movement um, as a shop steward, as an official, as a lay activist with the TNG and Unite, as an activist with the uh, Craig Avon Trades Council, as a comrade of Belfast Trades Council, as a communist, and uh, through his work with, with Trademark. And uh, he'll, he'll be sorely missed um, for his knowledge, his experience, his his music, his stories, his wit, and, and just for his, his company. And I know that he, he'll be especially missed at this time of year because he was often the, the heart and soul of, of Mayday celebrations. So I know that uh, everyone who knew him will be thinking about him uh, and his family tomorrow. So I just thought we, we couldn't let the moment pass without, without uh, saying something about Mel. Uh, but I, I've spoken enough, 
So I'm going to hand you over to Stevie, who's going to give us a presentation on, on the magic money tree. Stevie's going to speak for about half an hour, Stevie. So I'll leave it with you, Stevie. Thanks for stealing my story there, Sean. I had a nice little anecdote about that particular period of Mel Corrie's uh, attempt to tell the MMT story. It happened just after the first time we tried to talk about modern monetary theory was at a Unite Political School in Durham at the Durham Miners Gala. And hopefully, unlike today, when I tried it there, it was kind of tumbleweeds through the room. Part of the reason for that, of course, is that the, some of the things we're going to talk about, as much of which you'll know now because it's broken out of the periphery into the mainstream, um, is that it's very counterintuitive. Um, modern monetary theory it allows us to look at um, government finances and money creation in ways that we didn't think were possible. So it feels a bit weird. So we'll, we'll get, but we'll get through it together, and I'll do my best to um, explain it to you. I do know, however, before we go on, that the Belfast Trades Council didn't look very far in uh, casting it very far in trying to find a speaker to talk to this. So my imposter syndrome is looming large, but I'll do my best. Uh, as I said, MMTs kind of come from uh, the periphery of economic thinking ten years ago. Uh, to the mainstream really quickly, uh, particularly in the last couple of years and particularly during the period of COVID. Um, before that, and still in some cases, um, there's a lot of institutions and economists who, who have been accusing proponents of, of modern monetary theory of being quacks and misunderstanding the, the science of economics. They're now being dragged kicking and screaming into admitting that there might be something in it. Even David Williams, Ireland's leading economist, said last week that he'd, of course, always known about it. Um, so what is it and what is it not? Um, well, to save a bit of time, and in case there's any comrades in the Zoom room who are just dying to get in and give us a wee lecture, as happened to me twice in the last week, we know that modern monetary theory is not socialism. It might not even be the road to socialism. Whether it's a staging post within a left social democratic government for more transformative policies like Green New Deals and Just Transitions, we can have that debate. So what is MMT? Well, all it is really is simply a lens which allows us to see how our fiat monetary systems already work. So it's not a policy. Um, it's not a new direction. It's simply a way to understand how government finances and money creation and money supply, money supply work right now, because governments already operate according to the framework that modern monetary theory kind of reveals to us. Now, of course, how you decide to use that understanding does depend on your politics. Um, and when we're talking about money, of course, uh, and this is another kind of reminder of the limits of modern monetary theory, we're doing so within that Marxist definition of money as the universal equivalent or uh, an independent form of value. So money represents value and allows the value of commodities, including labor, to be expressed in price as price in a capitalist market. But that's a value that's created through exploitation of nature and labor. So increasing money supply by printing money, which we're gonna talk about, can only really work in a highly developed capitalist system, which is of course, in turn, based on exploitation. But let's not carry, get carried away uh, with um, MMT's revolutionary possibilities. What it does allow us to do, however, is kind of break out of the illusory kind of financial constraints of this system and that hinder our ability to imagine any kind of alternative or any kind of transformational policy like the Green New Deal or a jobs guarantee and so on. And so it's not about whether we can afford a certain policy in financial terms, but only whether we've got the enough kind of resources and productive capability and political will to implement those changes. But that in itself is a fairly big paradigm shift that's happening around us as we speak. For us in Trademark, uh, we use MMT as part of our process of political education because it challenges fundamentally the hegemony of orthodox economics and that kind of neoliberal framing of economic debate. So in that sense, it's good and it's useful. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna do that in the next 25 minutes. I see a lot of people here that I know, a few people I know, and I am aware of their uh, intellectual capacity 
So from this point on, I will be using pictures to help those people along with the debate. Okay, you know who you are, all right? So uh, let me share screen for a second. Feel free to interrupt me at any point. Um, if you put your hand up, Sean, just tell me if people are trying to get in. Um, if you go into a boozer anywhere, well, if you could, maybe in the two weeks you can try it out and ask a bloke. If there's a bloke sitting in the corner with no arse in his trousers and you ask him what's wrong with the economy, he's nearly always going to say there isn't any money and we can't afford it. Those neoliberal kind of framings, if you like, are deeply embedded in popular discourse. That's how everyone thinks about the economy. The most recent one to that, of course, is going to be, how are we going to pay for all this COVID furlough money? How are we going to pay for all these grants? And it's the same old neoliberal discussion about austerity. Well, look, lads, there's no money left. Really sorry about that. We've spent it all. So now we're just going to have to drag that money back by raising taxes or borrowing money or cutting public services. And so we're back to austerity 2.0. The problem, and it's on TV all the time. I just took a couple of, I think that was last year I took that one. And it's constant kind of fear-mongering about, um, talking about the uh, UK here in particular, about the amount of money the government's borrowing. It's on Channel 4, it's on BBC, ITV, all the time. Amazing figures, fabulous figures, 500 billions being borrowed by the government. Now, of course, the problem with all of that, that talk about borrowing, is that it's all a lie, sort of. I'll get into that. The British government is not borrowing 500 billion pounds. It's creating 500 billion pounds. And that's what modern monetary theory allows us to realise and recognise for the first time, really. There was a small snippet on the BBC last week. Uh, I haven't seen them since. They've probably done him in. And it was a BBC economics journalist who spoke about the fact that this borrowing wasn't borrowing from money markets. This borrowing was borrowing from somewhere else. It was creation of money. He's, been, he's probably been sent to the dungeons of the BBC for admitting the truth about, um, about how money is created. UK borrowing to see colossal increase to fight virus. Again, not true. And this is the issue where you're, it sounds a bit conspiratorial, really, doesn't it? The idea that you're accusing the government of telling lies to us, but I think we're all used to that, so it shouldn't be a big fucking shock. The thing about MMT is that once you get your head round, and it is a bit counterintuitive, as I said, it, it, you kind of have that light bulb moment. You go, oh, fine, right, okay, I get it now. And that's why it's useful, particularly if you're teaching trade unionists about political economy. That's why we use it, because it deconstructs all of those neoliberal myths that are deeply embedded in how people think about the world they live in. Um, and, you know, building socialism is one thing, deconstructing capitalism is another, and deconstructing the kind of hegemonic control that capital has over how we think about the world we live in is also really important, and that's what kind of what we try to do. Um, modern monetary theory, though, therefore, the world turned the right way up. There's loads of people involved in it, all sorts of post-Keynesians, left social democrats, I suppose you'd call them, not necessarily anti-capitalists at all. Francis Cop Coppola, Steve Keane, we had him in Lusty Big, some of you will remember. He gave a brilliant lecture on the last day, and no one understood it. <laughs> uh, it was hilarious um, a bit like today I suppose um, they're now sort of claiming as Steve does there on that uh, on that tweet says we're not going to get the recognition that we deserve because it suddenly broke out uh, god love them but you do feel sorry for them because they've been at this for like 30 years and no one's been listening to them and suddenly people like David McWilliams are claiming to have known about it all along a lot of it is based, of course, on the deconstruction of those neoliberal myths that were kind of that begun really in the 70s. They were begun actually in the mid 70s with the Labour Party. There's a there's a myth going about another well embedded myth that um, the Tories started this monetarist road. They didn't. It was under it was under Labour back in the mid 70s. They kind of prepared the ground for neoliberalism very well, by the way. Um, handbag economics, apart from the misogyny of that, it, it's it's a good analogy because Thatcher convinced everybody that. States work like the family budget. She was a housewife from Grantham. His dad was a butcher or a fucking gross or whatever the fuck it was. But he was going to run, she was going to run the state like you run a good business or run a good household. And you don't get in debt and you pay your bills on time. And that's where we get all of these um, embedded narrative points from. We're going to balance the books. We're going to live within our means to the point where that's all you hear in terms of economic commentary on the BBC uh, or on British or on lots of TV, particularly in the, within the British media, the macro media. 
Um, the other belief that she put forward has been, well, this has been around for even longer than that, is that the state's income is its tax take. Now, everyone believes that. Most of the people here, I don't know if you do, but I'm assuming a lot of you do believe that, that that's why we say things like tax the rich, don't we? Tax Bezos, get his money off him, make, make, let's build hospitals with his money. Um, the state's income is not its tax. That's the first counterintuitive understanding that modern monetary theory gives, and I'll get onto that in a minute. Um, the myth, again, is the state taxes and then it spends. Makes sense. You know, you go into the economy, you tax money out of the economy, and you use that as a pool of money to spend on public services. Again, that's not actually true. It's a nice narrative because it helps you with the above narratives of balancing the books and live with it. I mean, we can only spend what we tax. If we don't tax too much, if you want low taxes, we're going to have to go and borrow or we're going to have to cut public services. So it fits nicely into that narrative. It's kind of a really protected and squared narrative that is hard to break into, which is why it's been so hard for modern monetary theory to smash it apart. Um, so if a government wants to spend more, it either taxes more or it borrows more. So these are the fundamental on the shibboleths of, of modern neoclassical economic theory. That's how the economy works. So MMT says, no, it doesn't. It's the opposite of that. Um, and the other belief put about by neoliberals in particular and modern economists is that states either must not, that's kind of a European Union, German, ordo-liberal kind of view, or it cannot create their own money out of the blue, out of nothing. Uh, MMT says different or shows different. A lot of it's based on, of course, we haven't got time to go into all this, but because this is about fucking three-day political school, is what the idea of what is money, where does it come from, who owns and controls it, and how is it issued and circulated? Those are four key questions you have to understand as a, as a trade unionist, as a socialist. And, and it's the bit of capitalism that we don't really talk about that much. We talk about the productive forces of capitalism, we talk about imperialism, we don't talk about the whole money supply thing, but it's just as crucial a part of this system to understand as any other part. So we're kind of, you know, we're, it's, it's incumbent upon us to kind of address these issues. They're abstract, they're difficult, but they're really useful once you get your head around them. Um, the first problem is there's more than one kind of money. Uh, and again, you go to a pub and tell that to someone, it's gonna, you're going to have a strange argument because they're going to pull out a tenant. That's the only fucking money I see. There is more than one kind of money. There's cash, of course, issued by um, the state. You're not allowed to create your own cash and notes. Some of you are aware of that because maybe you've been caught trying to do it in the past. It's, it's really, they don't like it. Um, but there's also digital money, and that's increasingly the case in the modern economy. No physical form allow for instantaneous transactions and so on. That's how the modern stock market works. There's no cash being handed around in big uh, suitcases like mafia films of the 1970s. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, happens around here in Casa Well and doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Uh, there's public money and that's money issued by the state. That's the point I was making. You're not allowed to do that yourself. Um, seniorage is the kind of term to, that, that describes that ability to create your own currency. Now, of course, modern governments who have the ability, they don't just create cash, they also create digital money. So modern governments create two kinds of public money. So there's two kinds of money already. And then there's commercial money, which is different again from government money, because that's issued as debt by banks and it's designated in uh, national currency. But public money issued by governments or spent by governments and bank issued money are completely different kinds of money. Government money is debt free. Bank created money, lent money is, is debt laden money and it has to be paid back with interest. And when those two things are out of balance in any economy, when they're out of whack, then you're in prop, then you've got problems. And at the moment, globally, the world is mired in private bank-led bank -led debt. I think we're $233 trillion in debt globally. Um, uh, and so that's an issue. Um, in terms of cash, and we know this one, about 3% of money in the UK economy is cash now. It's almost gone. The next problem we're going to have and the thing we need to be discussing is the issue of a cashless society and the implications of having no cash. We all love tapping our little cards, don't we, when we go into the boozer. 
um, and not having cash, who does that impact upon? What does it mean in terms of government control? What does it mean in terms of surveillance of, and, and data and all the rest of it? 97% of all money is digital, but that's a mix of state spent money, debt-free and debt-laden money created by banks. Um, and so, yeah, debt-free and then debt money. And that's an example of about, that was about 2012, about the UK economy. There's, there's cash at the bottom. And of course, the only people who use cash nowadays are working class people still reaching in the, the wallets. No one else uses that. And the disappearance of cash is, I wouldn't say it's inevitable, but it looks as if it's kind of on its way. And that has huge implications for control of money supply and that, all of it really. And we need, need to be aware of that, what's going on almost behind our backs. Despite the myth of neoliberalism, um, states aren't households. You, should, you won't be surprised to hear. Um, and states create money as they spend. That's the first kind of step of understanding MMT. Just as banks create money when they lend, there's no limited pool of money. This is the myth of neoliberalism. There's a pot of money collected through taxes, and that's all there is. That's bollocks, frankly. To quote Tony Benn, not really, because Tony Benn always used to say, didn't he, 50 years ago, how is it there's always money for war? And the, 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 the kind of link in that, or the secret in that, is because governments can create their own money out of nothing. They've always known that. They don't have to borrow it. They just create it out of nothing, because they have their own central bank, which allows them to do it. Um, and so public governments create money as they spend. Um, governments with their own currency, so currency sovereignty is important. That's a lesson for um, the Republic of Ireland when it handed over its sovereignty in terms of its currency to the Eurozone, which is a huge fucking blunder. Um, we'll come on to that maybe later on. Governments with their own currency supply credit the accounts of suppliers with digital transfers. That's how governments spend. They don't have a pool of tax money, which they count up and then say, well, there's for the hospitals is for the schools they don't do that they just credit the suppliers with digital money that's how government expenditure works um and states with their own currency sovereignty can literally never run out of money they just keep printing it now of course if you print money we all know and i hope some of you are shouting at the screen hyperinflation and i hope someone's going to go fucking zimbabwe 100 trillion dollar notes and someone else is going to go what about why am i republic you when they took their wages home in wheelbarrows. Because as soon as you mention printing money, some clever clogs, who doesn't understand anything about economics usually, will throw Zimbabwe and uh, Weimar Republic. Now, hyperinflation is actually extremely rare. There are, the reason why people mention Zimbabwe and Weimar Republic is there are hardly any other examples of it. Um, but inflation does pose a risk for a modern economy, of course. We also know, however, that the auto-liberal kind of base structure of the European Union hates inflation. Now, why, would, why does it hate inflation? It hates inflation because it takes away or, or eats into the price of assets, of paper assets, of stock market holdings, of bonds and stocks and shares. That's why we keep inflation low, to keep the wealth of the rich high. A little bit of inflation is actually good for us, for workers, because it means wages go up and job supply goes up. Um, but inflation is an important factor in talking about government finances, because if it does produce too much money, there's a danger of inflation. And we know what inflation is. It's basically too much money chasing too few goods. So there's too much money in society and there's not enough goods to buy with it. Therefore, the price of the goods that do exist go up. Um, <clears throat> MMT says is that what governments do to control inflation is pull money out of the economy through taxation. Now, that is the complete reversal of what we understand happens in modern capitalist societies because we're told it's the other way around. MMT says, no, no, governments spend first. They spend into the economy. They credit the accounts of their suppliers with millions and billions of pounds if there's a danger and when you tax you're removing money from the system you're pulling money and you're actually destroying that money that money doesn't go into little pots to be spent the next year the purpose of tax is to pull money out of the system 
And there's two purposes to MMT, which is just one is to control inflation. So there's less money in this. You can control the amount of money in society relative to your productive capacities by pulling it out of the system. But there's another reason why you tax. And it isn't to build up your tax income to spend on public service. The other reason why you tax, I'll get onto that in a minute. So all governments with their own currency spend first in expectation of getting money back through taxation to control inflation, which it then destroys. Um, deficits, this obsession with 12-month deficits, are actually evidence of the fact that states spend first and then tax back. Why? Well, because if they waited until all the money was in, there wouldn't be a deficit, would there? If government collected 50 billion in tax this year, they said, well, we've only got 50 billion to spend, that's it. We're not doing any more. And the reality is, and this is the counterintuitive bit, so stop walking around with those stupid placards saying, tax the rich, please, and read a fucking economics textbook. Your taxes pay for fuck all. Now, that's counterintuitive for trade unionists and leftists, even left social democrats because that isn't the role of tax according to the theory that modern monetary theory gives us. Um, the, once you, and once you move away from the narrative of tax the rich to fund public spending, which is the bedrock of most leftist campaigns in Western Europe, by the way, and Northern Hemisphere, isn't it? I mean, you go at any demonstration, that's going to be a placard held by several thousand people. You can convince people it's just a better idea to confiscate the assets of the rich, which is actually what tax is. And you're reducing the purchasing power of the wealthy. You're reducing, you're reducing their economic and political power by taking their money off them. Now, for me, um, I would argue, and for others, that's a really interesting social idea, socialist idea, isn't it? Let's, con let's confiscate the assets of the rich. In this particular example, let's confiscate their wealth. Next time around, we'll just go for the means of production as well. So it's a proper socialist argument in that regard, and it's a proper socialist lens through which to, to view the world, that we compensate people's assets. It also has the added benefit of reducing inflation or controlling inflation. Um, and you can fight that battle, i.e. the battle against the wealthy, the battle against the capitalist class, while simultaneously improving li living standards of the people all around you. If you had a left social democratic government, which no one does, or maybe you can tell where Portugal potentially, but they're in the Eurozone, so it doesn't matter, because they're not allowed to do this. I'll get onto that in a minute. Um, but the deficit does get people very upset and it's constant in the press. It's constant about the end of the year. And it was on the BBC again last night that the government's in deficit. But we shouldn't really get very emotional about it um, because most governments are almost always in the red. In the last 48 years, the Office of National Statistics in the UK said the British government were in surplus five times out of 48 years. And in both of those five occasions, there was a recession. And that's the important thing to understand about the, the balance of payments in a modern capitalist economy. And um, the bigger the government deficit, the bigger the private sector surplus. In a, it, particularly in the UK, which is a country which exports less than it, or no, it imports more than it exports. So there's a, there's a trade imbalance. Because of that, there's a kind of downward pressure on aggregate demand in the domestic economy. So the government has to spend into the domestic economy in order to create a surplus in the private sector so that you're not in recession. This is the graph, Sean, that Mel had a meltdown on <laughs> and I have a meltdown ever I look at it but if you follow it and I'll send you these I will put these slides up so people can have a look at it and there's there's the sources of where we got it all from if over the last 40 years there's government deficits in the red right along the last all the quarters and there's private sector surplus every time the government goes into surplus there's the blues that means the government's got more money and that it has spent the private sector's in recession and that's the reality of deficit if we cancelled the deficit if the british government wasn't in deficit every year there would be a permanent recession because the government's contribution to the market and this again is a, contra a contradiction of the neoliberal myth of the small state 
that one that people still go on about, neoliberalism was never about the small state. It was about pretending it was about a small state. It was actually about the state acting very big in the, in the marketplace, but doing it on behalf of private capital, not on behalf of the people. And so every time the government's in deficit, there's a private sector surplus. I mean, it means there's jobs. So if you're a social democrat, you should be loving this because this is the social democratic argument for how to make capitalism better than it is. Um, the deficit is simply a smokescreen. We know that. It's a smokescreen for attack on it says on the state what that means on public services and on services that benefit working people but it is a absolute fetish in the macro media and that's where you get all that narrative from constantly you know even our own local politicians throw this stuff out all the time not really understanding what they're talking about and that's the truth of most politicians by the way when it comes to economics um and that one clearing up labor's ruinous mess it wasn't helped of course by liam Byrne, was it chief secretary of the treasury remember when they lost when brown lost to cameron and he left that note he said sorry there's no money left and David Cameron held that up on his first press, uh, whatever, press release. Said Labour admitted there's no money left, so that means austerity. So austerity is pragmatic, potentially, certainly opportunist, also ideological. That's the truth of it. Um, and, but what it isn't is actual economic analysis. It isn't that. It's none of it. It definitely isn't that. It's the other three. Why are we talking about all this stuff now? Sean, give me a nod if I'm speaking too long. Uh, we're talking about this because after the global financial crash of, of 2008, the words QE appeared. In the, and I remember them appearing in, in the Financial Times. I remember thinking, what the fuck is that? What is quantitative easing? I don't understand what they're. So we started looking at it, we started talking about it. It was actually our mate Conor McCabe, who people know down in Dublin, who first kind of sat down with us, him on a cup of coffee, us with several pints, and started talking about quantitative easing in Dublin. Um, and it was the first admittance, and it was the idea that when privatised banking, the credit crunch, when private banks stopped lending, the money creating powers of the state come into clear focus because Mervyn King on an interview says the private sector stopped lending, the government's going to have to create money now. And everyone, what do you mean the government creates money? You're not supposed to create money. You don't create money. The only money you have is tax money or borrowed money. And he admitted, no, no, there's a third option. In fact, it's the only option. It's the, it's the big option. It's what we do every day for the last 50 years since the end of the Bretton Woods Agreement, 1971. And he said, a damaged banking system means that today banks aren't creating enough money. We have to do it for them. There it was, bang, out in the open. The modern monetary theorists went mental. They had a party. It was the first time that anyone had admitted that governments do create money. The Americans followed very quickly afterwards and admitted in an interview, yeah, the Fed creates all this cash. How much? Billions, trillions, how much do you want? So it was a real massive paradigm shift. It hasn't trickled through everywhere, of course, that understanding, uh, but it's there and it's kind of pushing its way in. The Bank of England created 375 billion through uh, buying back its own debt. Um, of, of that 375 billion, they reckon about 10% of it found its way into the real economy. It trickled its way down, if you like, because that was government buying back its own debt, therefore releasing money into the banks. It's buying the, its own debt back off. Those banks were supposed to use that money in the economy. But what did they do? They gave it to their friends who speculated in the stock market. Stock market jumped by about 15 percent. That's what QE did. It basically created a massive stock market bubble in the middle of austerity while people were dying and fucking topping themselves. 120,000 dead in the UK from austerity. Meanwhile, the government's given money to capital to speculate in money markets. That was the point at which Labour, under Corbyn at least, 2015, started talking about quantitative easing for the people, if you remember. Could you use this new money creation system, not new, this, this actual money creation system, could, could we use it differently than just speculating in money markets? Um, and then in uh, Ben Bernanke, around the same time, on CBS, um, talking about the government's one trillion uh, bailout, he said, does this money come from taxpayers? Because I heard it last night on, from local politicians or the taxpayers' money. You always hear that phrase, don't you? That phrase is meaningless, by the way. This is with taxpayers' meaningless. It doesn't matter. 
There's no such thing as taxpayers' money. It gets destroyed. It disappears. But he was asked where the one trillion came from. It doesn't come from taxpayers, who are the only real citizens, of course. There's also loads of other kinds of meanings in taxpayers, isn't there? You know, i.e., if you don't work, you're not you're not a citizen. But anyway, and he said it's not the tax money. The banks have accounts with the Fed, much the same way that you have an account with a commercial bank. Um, so to lend to a bank, we simply use a computer to mark up the size of the account they have, i.e., we just do a digital transfer and we create money out of nothing. Bang, just like that. To the tune of one trillion. That's the reality. And so slowly this the reality of government finances and how it works is released into the public domain. But then, of course, it's shut down again by the establishment because they don't want people to know this kind of stuff. Because um, economics is for you know people like David Williams to understand, not plebs like us. Um, so quantitative easing emerged, and that's when people started to realise, and that's when MMT slowly drifts into the mainstream. Um, and that's central banks buying bonds. I, it's the state buying back its own debt. That's the first option of QE. Um, where did that money go? Is one question. So if the government's creating all this new money and pushing it into financial houses and banks, we know I've already given the answer. It went into the stock market for the most part. It could have gone elsewhere. It could have gone into green new deals and just transitions and job guarantees and all those things. The other question is, how does a government buy its own debt if it has no money? So it revealed the nature of government spending. Governments spend whatever they want. They don't have to have a tax pool of money. Because how did the government buy back £375 billion worth of its own debt if it had no money? It just created it. Um, what did it do with that debt, its own debt? So it bought back all this debt. So now it's got 375 billion quids worth of debt. That's its own debt. These are its own IOUs that it issued, that it bought back. So what did it do with it? It lumped it onto national debt and called it debt. But the question you should ask yourself, and I asked already, I think, is what would you do if you owe yourself a tenner? Uh, Steve, where's that fucking tenner? Sorry, mate, I haven't got... You'd, you'd cancel your tenner. If you owed yourself a tenner, you wouldn't pay yourself a tenner. The government owes itself 375 billion, so it could have cancelled that debt, could have just disappeared, but it lumps it onto national debt to make national debt look worse. Why? Because that legitimizes the austerity that's about to follow, and it's doing exactly the same thing now. Uh, 500 billion, I think it's more now, it's nearly a trillion, but of the 500 billion the government's borrowed, it's borrowed from the Bank of England. It's borrowed from itself. It is not debt at all, but it's going to be put on the national debt to legitimize, to excuse austerity 2.0. Uh, money doesn't grow on trees. Uh, yes, it does. The European Union getting on the act back in the day, back in 2014-15, it broke its own rules or changed or suspended its own rules. Mario Draghi, the head of the ECB at the time, said you can't just print money. And then, of course, they engaged in massive quantitative easing programs, I think at the time, 1.5 to 2 trillion or something like that. Um, David Cameron got fell in love with quantitative easing. More billions created over the time of his austerity. None of it going into the real economy, of course. I won't go into that, I've got too much time to do it. The United States have been doing it ad infinitum since 2009. Um, two actions by US financial authorities this week indicate the United States will respond to looming downturn in the global economy by uh, unlimited amounts of cash to financial markets. So the state is subsidizing capital. This is state monopoly capitalism, absolutely in action. Purchase around 60 billion of treasury bills a month. So they're buying their own debt back. That's kind of quantitative easing option one. They're buying their own debt back, therefore releasing 60 billion dollars a month into the american stock market they could have done that of course and released that money into the american economy through state-funded investment programs research and all the rest of it but they haven't they just handed it over because what would we do with all that money we'd only spend it on our children and our communities and our futures and a green new deal let them speculate with it in money markets that's a far more efficient way for it to work uh, japan of course has been at it for years <laughs> ever since their crisis of the 90s um they are the virtual sole purchaser of government debt it has a debt to GDP ratio of 240%, one of the highest in the world. 
But by purchasing all of its debt back from the money markets, it's engaged in massive fiscal expansion and spending without any inflation. So the hyperinflation fears didn't emerge and haven't emerged in Japan. The Japanese central bank owns 50% of Japanese debt, i.e., I'll ask that question again, what would you do if you owed some money? That 50% is not debt. So Japan's real debt to GDP ratio is about 120%, which is actually quite reasonable. Currently, Britain owes about half its own national debt, but it's not debt. It's just an accounting trick to make things look worse than they are. Um, and that's where the money goes on. That's one example of how the money from QE was spent. Mortgages, secured loans, financial sector, commercial property, personal loans. There's the public sector and there's the actual economy that employs actual people in real jobs. So the money doesn't go where it could go. The creation of QE money goes back into uh, financial markets and back into the top one to two, three percent of society. COVID hits. What happens next? Well, we know we've seen this before. The, it starts to uh, the narrative, the needle and lab gets pumped up again about how we're going to have to pay back all of this debt that we owe, all this money that we owe to various people. Um, it was clear, of course, in 2008, the central banks used, so we, we knew we were going to see this again. Um, we didn't think we were going to see as much of it as we've seen. And that's, that's the reason why modern monetary theory has broke through finally into, into mainstream economic debate and analysis. Um, it does it three ways. I don't really want to get into it in too much detail. You can read this because now I run out of time. The first option is the normal buying its own debt back. The second option, it issues its own debt to itself <laughs> and then buys it back immediately. Um, both of those options benefit the primary and secondary bond markets. I, both of the options of creating this new money here is basically the state giving money to private capital to facilitate their buying of their own bonds, if you know what I mean. So it's like a deal done between them. The state will get money back, but someone in the city of London is making a few million out of it as well. So it's nice for them. They're getting a few quid out of it. Government doesn't have to do it, of course, because option three came in. And option three, which they call the ways and means facility is how there's an accounting trick again. It just instructs the central bank to credit reserve accounts of whichever department of the state is doing the spending. So lit, not literally printing money, or metaphorically printing money, creating money out of nothing, bypassing the bond market. So capital and private dealers in the city of London in the nice big Shirley buildings, they're not making any money out of this. So they're not very really happy about this, by the way, the government's engaging in direct monetary financing because they're not getting a deal. It's going straight into our furlough money or whatever the government's spending it on. And so across the world, and I'm finishing this one more, Sean, in the US, the Fed has pledged to buy a potentially unlimited supply of government debt. And as you know, the United States is a massive amount of debt, so it can continue to do that for probably a couple of decades. <laughs> the ECB has launched another option one QE program, buying back its own debt. The e ECB will not engage in direct monetary financing or printing money because it's against the rules of the Maastricht Treaty, Article 104. It's against the rules of Lisbon Treaty, Article 123, which forbids direct monetary financing of governments within the European Union. So the entire articles of the Eurozone and the, and the treaties of the European Union are structured in such a way that disallows all of this, based as they are on that kind of German auto-liberal view of how the world should work. Um, so peripheral countries, countries struggling, have to borrow money. So the Republic of Ireland has no option but to borrow money in international money markets, get some of that QE money if it's lucky, but it won't get extra money from the ECB. It won't allow it. So things work different. And that's one of the reasons why I said countries giving up their monetary sovereignty for the eurozone was a was a bad idea and i think we'll we'll see the proof of that in the next five to ten years it's one of the pl few places in the world where there's this there's a currency but no country <laughs> everyone else is a country with a currency we have a currency but no country which of course is their ultimate ambition unlike the us and the ecb the uk government is now cutting out option one and two of quantitative easing and is simply relying upon um running up debts as its own bank and pretending that they they have to be paid back but they could and should be cancelled or never paid back, left on the books and simply never paid back.
because it has to pay it back to itself. Again, would you pay back a tenor that you owed yourself? Of course you wouldn't. It's broken into the mainstream. These are a couple of, again, when you get look at these slides, um, monetary finance and demands, careful and sober management, the use of direct monetary finance and demonstrate once and for all the government. This is in the Financial Times. This would never have been in the Financial Times two or three years ago. COVID has kind of forced these debates because people are talking about what the, the Bank of England and the British state is up to now. Printing money is a valid response to the coronavirus crisis. They're talking about direct monetary financing. That's from the Financial Times as well. Justin, the Bank of England will directly finance extra spending. This is not borrowing. And that's the lie. This is the government printing its own money to spend. It's not causing an inflationary period at the moment. It could do in the future if it keeps doing it. Bank of England to direct finance extra government spending. So the British government is not borrowing money. It is creating money. And tell all your mates that. It's a lie. Uh, but it's a lie that will excuse what the Tories are going to do next. And there's more. Even the Guardian got in on the act. Bank of England to finance UK government COVID-19 crisis spend. Um, now, of course, that's also a lie because the government spends its money as it wants all the time anyway. It's just an accounting trick to pretend it's direct, called direct monetary finance. So that rant is over. The magic money tree that Theresa May said doesn't exist, does exist. Of course, what matters is who owns that magic money tree, who controls that magic money tree, and also where that money ends up. And, all, and, and this time around with COVID, some of it's ended up with us through furlough and through grants and whatever. But again, we haven't seen the figures, but it'll be interesting to find out how much of that money ended up in the hands of private capital. And that will be our next bit of research because uh, there are brilliant people doing that right now. But you can be guaranteed that the vast majority of the nearly trillion pounds created and spent has not gone into communities, has not gone to save jobs, has not gone to invest transformational policies like the Green New Deal or a jobs guarantee or anything like that. It'll have simply gone back into the stock market. So, Shanae, I'm a creek now. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, I think we'll I think we'll wrap things up there. Thanks a lot, Stevie, for covering so much ground in such a short period of time. That comrades was trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slang of foil.